Anyways, on to the Bible. <laughs> um, but isn't that just the story of God, that actually no matter where we are, and it's, it, it, in fact, it's the story that Luke is sharing with us, that no matter who you are, where you're from, um, be it, you know, the Sudan, South Africa, or South Gloucestershire, that you are welcome, that this is the family of God, and this is where we feel our belonging because of Jesus. And so, I don't know if you've uh, listened or listened to the South African share Luke 7 or 8, or read it for yourself, um, but we're having so much fun. I don't know if you guys are enjoying um, going through Luke. I really am. I'm enjoying hearing Luke from various perspectives, from various angles, uh, and just enjoying the fact that the Bible is supposed to be a community affair, that we're not supposed to read the Bible in isolation, and we've been talking about this in our little Bible geeks group, um, that actually it's, it's through all of your interpretation that I am enriched, that I am enriched, so we've really been enjoying it. So if we... <clears throat> If we, we've been talking a lot about justice and injustice, and when we think about those concepts, we really t tend to think about inequalities, don't we? We, we? we think about distribution of wealth. In fact, we've spoken about it. Um, or distribution of resources or access to services. Or perhaps you think that justice means more about laws or regulations, about fairness, about courts, or, some, or someone winning a case over someone else. Um, or perhaps it's about lobbying the government to change the way that certain issues are handled. I don't know about you, but it feels like all of those things are true, but they feel like really out there, you know? When we think about this concept of justice, like, oh, we, we've got to go start a movement for something. But I will put it to you that I think God looks at these things slightly deeper, uh, and that certainly justice is a much more personal thing. Justice must involve how we deal with our neighbor, our friends, and our communities. But before we jump into Luke and seven, verse 7 and 8, let's just go through some of the stories that Luke covers off. The faith of the Roman centurion, Jesus raising a widow's son from the dead, Jesus sending proof of himself to John the Baptist, woman who followed Jesus, parable of the farmer scattering seed, parable of the lamp, the true family of Jesus, Jesus calms the storm, Jesus heals a demon-possessed man, Jesus heals in response to faith. He was a busy man. <laughs> That's two chapters. Um, but today I want to hone in on three stories. These, st these stories speak to the message of the good news of the kingdom of God and the value that Jesus places on human beings. In every setting, rich, poor, middle class, low class, clever, or mad. So let's jump right in. I want to share three stories. And if you, if you take down notes or if you like a title to something, my title is The Outsider, The Outcast, and The Outlier. So let's start with chapter 7. Jesus begins with the Roman centurion. Think gladiator movie, just slightly toned down from Hollywood. And a centurion it was usually a leader of about, uh, usually between 60 and 70 uh, Roman soldiers. So they had a garrison. In this case, it was Capernaum. Um, the centurion usually officially had 100 soldiers under his watch, but in this case, well, usually about 60 or 70. So in this story, we've got the Jewish. The centurion has got 
um, some friends uh, with, within the local Jewish synagogue. These, the Jewish elders approached Jesus and... <coughs> Sorry, where am I here? The Jewish, Jewish elders approached Jesus and Jesus responds by making his way to the centurion's house. In Jewish culture, it would be inappropriate for a Jewish teacher, i.e. Jesus, to enter the house of an unclean pagan, the centurion. But this is the kingdom that Jesus lives in and exudes, one where rules are quite different. As Jesus approaches the centurion's house, he is stopped and tracked by more friends with a clear message that Jesus needs say the word, that a servant is well and it will be done. It's not clear as to why the centurion would say this. It perhaps could be that he doesn't want to bother Jesus, uh, a perceived rabbi, or perhaps he is trying to honor the tradition of keeping the rabbi clean. But Jesus' response, Jesus' response is even more remarkable. He says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I seen such faith. So the story rounds off, which is also remarkable, is the healing of the servants, albeit remotely. And that's amazing in itself, but this story has always puzzled me. The fact that the servant is instantly healed is amazing, of course, but the last words that Jesus says are what really leaving, uh, leaves us asking a lot of questions. So I wonder if you can kind of just turn to the person next to you uh, or behind you, in front of you, form a little huddle, not, not too long, just... If you can ask the question, what, what about the, centurion, the centurion's action makes it great faith? How's the discussion going? Has anybody got some pearls of wisdom for us? Pippa. <laughs> Emily pointed to you. He doesn't want a big show. I like that. Darren at the back. He's risking his livelihood position. Love it. He doesn't even question. He just accepts. Anyone else? A confidence. These are all great answers, by the way. <laughs> this, is, this is what the Bible was meant to be. Um, and I think you actually all are right. Uh, the commentators say that the remark would likely mean that Jesus was pointing out the centurion's understanding of how the authority of heaven worked. That actually if God said something, it could be done. In other words, God had ultimate authority, that he ruled as a benevolent king and followers of God would do well to understand how that worked. Now that's a very like sort of textbook answer, isn't it? But the reality is, I think that there's all of the added elements that you've added to it, and maybe one other, which I've kind of stumbled upon. Um, and this aspect of faith, I would say, would be that you and I exercise today. The exercise of faith whilst not in the physical presence of Jesus. Now, you might go, that's pushing it a bit, Ryan, because what applies then has got to apply now. But I would say, I would argue that it it does, that the centurion exercised the same faith that we do in the 21st century, that not having Jesus around in our midst, that we get to call upon God and that heaven gets to invade earth in the centurion's life and the centurion's household just as it does in ours today. Just remember that the centurion wasn't Jewish. 
He was not a disciple of Jesus. He had probably heard about the miracles of God. He had heard stories. Perhaps he'd even witnessed some. But he'd not been sort of day-to-day experiencing these miracles like the other disciples had done. He was a real outsider. And I would argue that the centurion leaves for us this model that flow into the, you know, the centuries and millennia afterwards, that Jesus and the invisible Holy Spirit, who we call upon, are in fact able and present to do all that God promised and, have, and has the power to change our lives. And so as Jesus encouraged us to pray in Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, we have no less audience than if Jesus was standing before us like he was the centurion and placing demands on him. So I think we take it as an encouragement for ourselves. We take that into our lives now and go, actually, out of all of the people that Jesus responded to, the, the great faith was through the centurion, the outsider who called upon Jesus, and this miracle happened without Jesus actually touching anyone, without Jesus being there. And so I think that says something to it. But there is more to the eye than meet, sorry, there is more to the story than meets the eye, and it's this part, Luke 7, 7. The centurion's words, I am not even worthy to come and meet you. Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. And this kind of discloses where the centurion was, because all the reasons, perhaps, that I've mentioned before, this actually reveals his heart. He didn't feel worthy of having Jesus with him. He didn't feel like he was good enough. And I think Luke is introducing this theme, which runs through most of Jesus' encounters. And it's subtle, but it's no less there, that Jesus sees people's true worth. That that's the doorway through which the miracle happens. That he sees past the facade, he sees past the shame, and he's able to invade into people's life. So it brings us back to this concept of justice, for if we consider what justice is at its core, core, it's about access, isn't it? It's about access to people, and it's about access to resource. It's seeing and hearing people for who they are, and then responding to their need. At the core, if we define a core definition for justice, yes, all the other things are right, but it's ultimately about that access seeing people for who they're worth, and then responding to need. I think like most of us, we've all felt like outsiders. We've been excluded. We simply don't have access to something or someone. But I wonder if any of you have experienced being an outcast, where, socially, where, someone, where society has told you that you are worthless. Luke leads us to a more intimate story. The scene is set in Luke 7.36. Simon the Pharisee, which endures religious... Uh, culture, was a keeper and protector of Jewish law, kind of like a priest, Uh, and Jesus is invited by Simon the Pharisee to have a meal at his house. It was quite common in those days for people with a bit more, you know, sort of social pull to invite the traveling philosopher or the teacher into their house to have a meal, to listen to what he's got to say, uh, to show off uh, their hospitality a bit, and then send them on the way. So this was Quite a normal thing to do. So Jesus is having, um, it says he's reclining at the table. Um, he is enjoying his, um, the feast. 
And if you can just picture this for a moment in your mind's eye, the, the usual streets uh, of Capernaum or anywhere sort of in Israel, you wouldn't have a door onto, in the doorway, so the, the, the doors would be open or there would be, you know, sort of you could see into someone's house and what was happening. And often with these feasts, they would let people walk in from the streets and they would be able to sort of stand at the back um, behind the guests and sort of listen to what the traveling person had to say. They could sort of, um, they weren't usually, they didn't usually participate, but they were able to listen uh, and in a sense pick up some of this wisdom. So as it was a feast, they would also be, and, and, and the fact that they were reclining at a table meant that, that Jesus was um, sitting down with his feet behind him. Now we always kind of think the story is people sitting, uh, Jesus sitting with the woman in front of him, washing his feet, but the woman was actually behind him as he sat um, down on the floor and with his feet behind him. So the next thing that happens is this lady comes in and the Bible, or Luke, calls this lady uh, a sinful woman. So it's obvious that she's, got some, she's done something to, to get this type of reputation. We don't know exactly what she's done, um, but I suppose you can assume that she's, she's, she either has a trade that's uh, a little bit, uh, yeah, disreputable, thank you, or uh, that she's got a, a sort of bad reputation around town. Anyway, um, she comes in, and she, she kneels behind Jesus, and she begins to weep. And with her tears, and then with her hair, she begins to wash um, the feet of Jesus. And then she, she pulls out an alabaster jar, which in those days... Um, was a perfume, and this perfume was a very expensive perfume, and it would have cost about a year's worth of wages. So if you can think about, think about your savings account and dropping one year's worth of wages in there, you can, you can kind of feel the, uh, the sacrifice that this lady was going through to bring this alabaster jar to the feet of Jesus. So anyway, just remember that Simon the Pharisee has brought Jesus because he's supposed to be some famous prophet, and he makes a snide remark. If Jesus really was a prophet, he would know what type of woman was washing his feet. Jesus responds, as he does, in usual parable form, which is a story that Jesus often used to share important messages. There were kind of metaphors for what was happening at the time. So he begins to share about these two people who had their de debts written off by creditor. One had a larger debt than the other. The, quick, the key question was, who would love the credits are more. I ask you. Two people, one with a large debt, larger debt than the other. One was written off. Who would have the, who would love, the credits are more. Correct. The one with the larger debt. What was Jesus saying? I ask you. Exactly right. He who is forgiven much, loves much. Jesus is redefining the rules of worth. Now let's just think for a moment what type of community Luke is writing about here and, and that Jesus is encountering. There's generally two types of people in the community okay, that, that kind of Luke's writing about. There's the Jews, where in the Jewish community, worth had more to do with what you gave to God 
and what religious hoops you jump through, and then everybody else, or non-Jews, the Gentiles, where they were completely excluded from relationship with God, although God often made exceptions to that himself. And remember, who's writing Luke? He's, he's a Gentile himself. So Jesus totally ignores the rule book, rule book and defines worth around how much we are loved or how much the lady is loved and then how we love or the sinful woman loves in return as opposed to just satisfying rules and thereby opening the way to all humanity. This is no small moment. The outcasts are now being welcomed to the table. You and I are now welcomed at the table. So I wonder if you can just sort of, in your groups, just break off for a couple of minutes and let's discuss how we as a society define our own rules for worth. So let's just, in our, in our groups, I'll repeat that. How do we as a society define our own rules for worth? And I want to hear your answers. It sounds like this is causing quite a good bit of banter. <laughs> okay, who's got some answers for us? Just shout them out. I like how... <clears throat> how much money you've got. <laughs> I mean, that is so true, isn't it? If you've ever, if you've ever, if you've ever been with super um, wealthy people, and I love super wealthy people, don't get me wrong, but but it is kind of like the air up there, you know. <laughs> there is, there are certain things that you need to purchase to be part of the air up there, and so that absolutely. How much money you have? Give me some more, people. Your work, what you do, your looks, what you look like, absolutely. So what work you do, skills, how good, how competent you are. Sorry, I didn't hear that. What you can do for people, reciprocity. What you own, whether you own a property or not? Yeah. Absolutely. Your? Your social status, who you mix with, who your friends are. That's right. Are, are any of those actually bad things in themselves? Yeah. Absolutely. As long as you don't worship them. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. I mean, you just have to go onto Instagram and you can see how we were, what we sort of place worth on. Yeah. All right. So Jesus is, he's turning it on his head, and I think he's still doing it today. Because aren't we all guilty of those traps? I mean, I was chatting to, so Lauren and I have been, uh, we sort of been looking at getting uh, a sort of another car, or should I say I've been looking at getting another car, because, <laughs> yes, not again. <laughs> That's what happens when you invite your mom to church. Um, so anyway, I'm a lawyer, and 
I fit into all of the genres of what you place your worth on. I'm like, I've got a profession, and with that profession, you have to look a certain way for people to believe that you are part of this profession. <laughs> In this country, you've got to wear a shirt and a tie and a jacket. And now that we're visiting clients at home more readily, if I, if I pitch up at my client's house in my well-working, not so beautiful, <laughs> yes, clapped up, thanks, mom, uh, Hyundai Gets 2006 model, um, what kind of impression is that going to give to my clients? Like you might say, Ryan, that's, that's kind of legitimate, you know. Um, but it, it's just a, pure, a prime example that where our worth comes from, isn't it? And I'm so guilty. <laughs> I'm like, yes, that's me. And I probably will buy the car as well. <laughs> but it's, I mean, I think we all are guilty because we want to fit in. We want to look cool. We want to be liked. We want to have acceptance. We want our clients to believe that we're competent lawyers <laughs> by the cars that we drive. Yes, it sounds ridiculous, but um, we're just so guilty of it. And I just love what Jesus is doing here because he's going, just come, just come and be, and you are worthy. You are worthy. You are worthy. And that's the starting point of justice, church. I mean, we can, go on about, we can go on about poverty, and we will go on about poverty. <laughs> and we can go on about human trafficking, and we will go on about human trafficking, because there are great injustices that need the tides turned. However, if we don't come down to the level of where Jesus and the sinful woman were, if we don't look in her eyes and go, you are worthy, then we've We've missed the whole concept. We've missed the whole idea of what Jesus' idea of justice is. And so, sorry. And so, the last, the last story uh, is in Luke 8, at the end of Luke 8. And, and it's a poignant story because it's crazy and it's absurd and it's, and, and it's the story of where Jesus gets in the boat, and he goes across the Galilee to the area of the Gerasenes. Did I say that right? Gerasenes. <clears throat> anyway, you can correct me later. So he goes across. This is a non-Jewish area. It's a Gentile area. Jews don't live there because it's not cool. And um, the Gerasenes was a little bit of a wasteland, and it had a... It was where people buried the dead. So it had tombs. So you can imagine cemetery, just multiply that by a thousand. And it was a place where people took their dead. And Jesus goes across the Galilee. We're not sure why he goes across. I think he wants a rest. <laughs> this is the kind of absurd part of the story because he encounters a man with a thousand demons. So the Bible says this, um, that this man had a lesion of demons which... Uh, means that, usually means that he's, what, well, a lesion is a thousand, so let's just say that he's heavily demon-possessed, all right? Jesus casts out the demons into the pigs. You guys heard the story? Now, it, 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 it's got to make you chuckle because, I mean, I think Jesus was actually having a little bit of fun here, personal uh, opinion. I mean, I'm not sure where demons would usually be safely stored, <laughs> if you think about it. 
where do you, I mean, do they just sort of, where do they go? Anyway, so Jesus, Jesus, with full authority of heaven, casts out these demons and tells them to go into the pig. Anyway, pigs. Anyway, the local pig farmers are not too pleased, understandably, with this arrangement as the pigs go hurtling off the cliff. I mean, if you're the pig farmer, you, you might also take issue. Anyway, the serious part of the story is that Jesus really deals with the root, the demons, casting them into the pigs. This man is completely healed of his mental and social ills. I wonder in our postmodern scientific age, we have forgotten that the root is often spiritual, and so that's what Jesus deals with first. After the man's healing, there is this beautiful picture of him sitting just completely well next to Jesus. His response is beautiful. Jesus, I would like to follow you. He wanted to be a disciple. So this man, completely demon-possessed, encounters Jesus, who was hoping for a holiday, goes to the root of the problem, deals with it, and then this man sits 100% healed next to Jesus, wanting to be his disciple. Isn't that a picture of justice? Isn't that a picture of victory? Jesus immediately sees his worth and restores the man. He gives him access to himself and the kingdom. He sees who he truly is. He responds to his need. Now, Jesus had to have gone there. So I wonder, just you know, a little bit of an activation for this week, just in, in, in your little huddles. What would it look like if we extended our social circle just a little bit this week? If we looked outside where we would usually go, the friends we would usually meet, the people we would usually encounter, and what would it look like just widening that circle a little bit this week? Because remember, Jesus' model is clear. He didn't go looking for these people. Okay, most of the time they came looking for him. But he just, he was, he was living his ordinary life. Yes, there were miracles happening around him. Yes, there were people placing demands on him. But he was mixing in those circles intentionally. So just in your groups, in your huddles, what would it look like this week if you just went outside? It's a little bit of a challenge, but maybe just discuss that. What would it look like if you just went outside your immediate circle this week. Okay. I know you've probably um, got some interesting ideas. Unless you want to share them, I would simply say, let's do it. <laughs> yeah, let's do it this week. Um, and let's ask each other when we come back next week, hey, did you, did you do that thing that you thought was a good idea? Even it was, you know, greeting your coworker and finding out what's happening in their lives. It doesn't have to be something that's, you know, insane for your life. <laughs> it, can be, it can be just just that little bit wider, stretching the circle, making the circle bigger. Um, just to round off, guys, as I come into land, and if we can just consider those three stories, if we can just have them in our mind's eye, the outsider, the outcast, and the outlier. And light of our justice theme about people having access to be seen and heard and then responded to. Isn't it interesting that each of these stories is so different? You know, it's not like 
It's not like a cookie cutter mold that Jesus is using here. It's different, each one. And he, he treats them so differently. <clears throat> he responds to their needs. Jesus gives them access and worth. He hears them out, often with deep, deep empathy, and then responds with heaven's involvement and deep love. So I wonder if we could just end off today by considering those three themes. Um, and I, I wonder if there's anybody here who's really struggled with worth, if you felt like the outsider, if you felt like the outcast, if you've um, felt like the outlier. I wonder if whether God is inviting you today into His presence, where He's wanting just to sit you down next to Him and tell you that you're worthy. And I think so, so many of us just need to hear that, that you're worthy, that you're accepted, that you belong. And so we're just going to sing a song, and I would just encourage you, um, if that's you, if you'd like someone to pray with you, please, just, yeah, please put up your hands.